Today we continue our study of the Philippian letter. Today the Philippian letter continues to study us. We've already ascended the Mount Everest of this New Testament epistle. For Paul tells us that Jesus is the God-man. One person, two natures. Jesus, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or exploited. So he made himself nothing. Literally, it says, he emptied himself. He took the nature of a servant. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You and I know that the story of Calvary is not the end of the story. Because though Jesus was slain and though his dead body was taken off the cross and placed to a borrowed grave, on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. The dead man got up again. And because of that, Paul writes, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What proceeds from that passage is a call and a command for Christians to live the incarnational Christian life. In our passage today, Paul anticipates a rebuttal from the congregation. For they might say, how can we live that life? I'm not Jesus. He's the God-man. I'm not the apostle Paul. He was selected by the Lord to be the apostle to the Gentiles. How can I, a simple saint, live to such lofty standards? And in so many words, the apostle gives two examples Two of a kind, two ordinary saints who do extraordinary tasks through Christ living in them. Two ordinary saints who do extraordinary tasks through Christ living in them. I invite you this morning to draw your sword, turn to Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read in your hearing verses 19 to 30. And once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence, the public reading of God's holy word. Philippians chapter 2, allow me to begin at verse 19, and I'll conclude at verse 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself. Because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to me to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, almost died. But God had mercy on him, not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him. So that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy. Honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. 
May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. This morning, I want to do three things with this passage. First, I don't want to attempt to recreate the background of these verses. Secondly, I want to offer to you a couple of words that seem to characterize Timothy and Epaphroditus. And third, issue a challenge to you and to me from these verses of Scripture. So first, I uh, want to attempt to recreate the background of this passage. It's the year 61 A.D., The Apostle Paul is under house arrest. He is chained 24-7 to a Roman guard of the palace guard. It had been 10 years since he, by the power of the Holy Spirit, had established the church at Philippi. And even though a decade had passed, those Philippian believers still remembered with vivid clarity the day that Paul and Silas and Timothy came to town. When they heard that Paul was imprisoned, Collectively, they said, we've got to do something. So they put together a care package. They put together a love offering. They collected finances. They collected assistance and aid. And they wanted to send that gift to the apostle. Now, one of the issues is that 800 miles separates Philippi from Rome. 800 miles. Now, that would be a a long trip for you and for me. That would be like uh, going from Birmingham, Alabama to Miami, Florida. And if we commissioned a team of missionaries to go to Miami, Florida, that would take some planning. It would take some rearranging of schedules. That would take some organization. That would take some assistance. And we would commission them. We would send them. And in this day and time, it would be a, it would be somewhat of a challenge to put people together to do that but we would do it and we would have the comforts of planes and trains and automobiles none of that was available for Epaphroditus so traveling in the first century was treacherous a hassle inconvenient dangerous Yet there was one man that stepped up, one man who said, I'll go, I'll take the love package, I'll take the the gift, the love offering, the care package, I'll take it to the Apostle Paul. His name was Epaphroditus. Apparently, he made it successfully to Paul. But when he got there, he grew sick. And I'm talking about seriously sick. He almost died. Paul tells us twice in our passage, once in verse 27, once in verse 30, that Epaphroditus almost died for the sake of the gospel. What I'm about to tell you, you've got to kind of read between the lines to see it. But there are more than a few theologians that agree with this next statement. I think that when Epaphroditus came, he brought a request to Paul from the Philippian church. They wanted Paul to send Timothy back to them. The thinking goes like this. 
if they could not physically lay eyes on their founding pastor because he was under house arrest in Rome, the next best thing is to be able to see and to talk to his son in the ministry, Timothy. They knew Timothy was with him. They knew that speaking with Timothy was almost like speaking with Paul, the apostle. And so they remembered fondly how Timothy came and helped to establish a church. So they sent the request, will you please send Timothy to us and Epaphroditus can stay and minister to you. Well, it sounds like a good idea, except for the fact that Epaphroditus got sick and he almost died. And Paul thought and prayed and came to the conclusion, it is necessary for Timothy to stay with me. I need to see how this thing's going to turn out in Rome. And I think it's necessary for you to see Epaphroditus again. Paul understood that bad news travels fast. Can I get an amen? I mean, if you got some bad news, all you got to do is tell one person and then everybody knows because bad news travels quickly. The church at Philippi, they had heard that Epaphroditus was sick, ill, almost died. They were concerned about him. Epaphroditus was concerned about the church that he came from, the church that he loved and, and served well there. And so he was concerned about it. But Paul came to this conclusion, I think it'd be better for Timothy to stay with me. I will send him soon, but for right now, now that Epaphroditus is getting better, he's over his sickness, God's had mercy on him, spared his life, spared me sorrow upon sorrow, now I'm going to send him back to you. So Epaphroditus had made an 800-mile journey from Philippi to Rome. He got sick, almost died, got better. After a few weeks or months, then Paul said to him, now that you're well enough to travel, you need to go back to Philippi. You want me to go back 800 miles? Yes, I need for you to go back 800 miles and carry this thank you note, this letter, back with you to the church at Philippi. I think that Paul did that for a theological reason as well. Remember, he's anticipating a rebuttal from the crowd. He already knows the congregation well. He knows that when he lifts up Jesus and says, this Jesus needs to live inside of you, you need to have this incarnational Christian life, the first rebuttal that will come from the congregation is, how can I live like that? I'm not Jesus. How can I live like that? I'm not even the Apostle Paul. So Paul uses Epaphroditus as an object lesson. He says, I want to show you what it looks like to live the incarnational Christian life. You've got somebody in your midst and he, he's living it out well. He almost died for the sake of the gospel. Now, Epaphroditus may not have been the one they wanted to see come over the horizon, but he was the one they needed to see come over the horizon. And so Paul says, I think it's necessary to send back Epaphroditus for your sake, for my sake, for the best interest of everybody involved, so receive him gladly. Receive men like him with great joy. Why? Because he is a living example of someone who's living the incarnational Christian life. I think that's the background to our passage. Let me give you a couple of words that I think characterize Timothy and Epaphroditus. The two words I'll give you that characterize Timothy is that Timothy was compassionate and proven. Epaphroditus, he was trustworthy and faithful. We know a lot more about Timothy than we know about Epaphroditus, don't we? 
This young man named Timothy is mentioned some 24 times in Paul's letters. Two of Paul's letters are addressed to him specifically. He is Paul's son in the ministry. He is the pastor at First Baptist Church of Ephesus, that well-established church with a long, rich history. And so uh, Timothy is one that, that we are kind of familiar with. We are first introduced to Timothy in Acts chapter 16. It's there that Luke tells us about the disciple named Timothy. He lived in Lystra. We know that Timothy came from a home where his mother was a person of deep Christian faith. His father is described as a Greek, which probably means he did not know the Lord. Let me stop right there. Maybe you know what it is to live in a home where there's one parent who's a believer and the other parent who's not. If, if you live in a home where, 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 where at least one parent knows the Lord, I want you to praise Jesus today because that faith was deep in the mother of Timothy. We learned from another epistle in 2 Timothy uh, that the faith that first lived in his grandmother Lois now also lived in his mother Eunice and now lived in Timothy. So Paul was articulating this transgenerational faith that was passed down from grandmother to mother and now to son. So Timothy had a tremendous blessing because he lived in a home where at least he had some ancestry of Christianity. Friend, if you have some Christian heritage, just stop today and praise the Lord. Praise God that the Lord saw fit to raise you in a home where at least one parent knew the Lord. And some of you had the awesome privilege of being raised in a home where both mom and dad knew the Lord, loved the Lord, and made him known in a very obvious way. And if you're that, you're doubly blessed. So you ought to praise the Lord. If you're listening to my voice, and you say, Pastor, I'm a first-generation believer. What I mean by that is that there's nobody in your family who knows the Lord. You are the first person to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You're the first person in your family to come to faith in, in, in Jesus. If that's you, I want you to praise the Lord today. You say, why? Because God has saved you to change the trajectory of your family for generations to come. There will be many future generations in your family that will call you blessed because you received the faith and you passed on the faith to your children and your grandchildren. In other words, if you're a Christian, today you ought to praise the Lord. However you got there, however you became a Christian, however you came to faith, whether it was Christian ancestry or whether you're a first-generation believer, if God has opened up your eyes unto his salvation, you ought to stop right now and give a hallelujah hop. You ought to stop right now and just praise the Lord. You ought to stop right now and say, thank you, Jesus, because I'm saved because of who you are and who you've plopped and planted in my life. So here, Timothy was one who had a Christian mom, but probably a pagan dad, but he came to faith. The Bible describes him in Acts chapter 16 as a disciple. We have already been told that a disciple is a lifelong believing learner of Christ. That certainly would apply to Timothy, a lifelong believing learner of Christ. In Acts chapter 16, verses 2 and following, it says, that the people of Lystra and Iconium, 
spoke well of him. Lystra, that's his hometown. Iconium, that's the neighboring city. The people of Lystra and Iconium spoke well of Timothy. Can I ask you a question? What do people say about you? When the brothers and sisters of the faith get together at church, and in conversation your name comes up, what do they say? When the people of the city, the city of Pelham, Helena, and Alabaster, the greater Birmingham metro area, when the people of the city get together and talk, and in conversation your name comes up, what do they say about you? How well do they speak of you? Do they say, there goes a man or a woman who is compassionate and proven, trustworthy and faithful? Or do they say of you, there goes a complainer, a hothead, a know-it-all, a gossip? And right now, if you're thinking to yourself, Pastor, I don't care what other people are saying about me. I don't really know what they're saying about me, but I don't care what people say about me. Can I stop you right there? For the sake of the gospel, you should care. For the sake of the gospel, you should care about what people are saying about you here in the church as well as in the city. We ought to care about our character and we ought to care about our reputation. I know a lot of men and women who say, I've gotten to the point, Pastor, where I'm old enough, I just don't care what anybody says about me. Shame on you. Because all of us ought to care. We ought to care what people say about us. The scripture says of Timothy that when the people of the city of Lystra and Iconium got together, they spoke well of Timothy. He was a disciple. Timothy was one uh, who was compassionate. What does the Apostle Paul say of Timothy? Well, if you look in our passage, Paul simply says this, I have no one like him in my life. Does anybody say that about you? I mean, Paul is saying this in the most positive way possible. He says, I have, I have no one like him. There's no one in my life like Timothy. He is so valuable to me. He is precious to me. He has affection and adoration uh, like a son to his father. I mean, this young man, I've got nobody like him in my life. It was Warren Wiersbe who said that Timothy was living out Philippians 1.21, not Philippians 2.21. In Philippians 1.21, it says to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 2.21, Paul continues in our passage, and he simply says, for everyone looks for their own interest and not the interest of Jesus Christ. So Timothy is not like everybody else. He doesn't just merely look after his own interests, but he's living out Philippians 1.21, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Wearsby says, for all Christians, all of us live somewhere between Philippians 1.21 and Philippians 2.21. All of us live somewhere between making much of the Savior or living in sheer selfishness. And Timothy was erring on the side of 121. He was erring on the side of making much of Jesus to live as Christ and die is gain. Timothy was 
compassionate. I have no one like him, Paul says. He has genuine interest in your welfare. The word genuine interest is a two-word phrase in the ancient language. We could understand it as compassion. If we were to dig a little bit deeper, a rough translation, a rough understanding of those two words would be the phrase good worry. Timothy has good worry regarding you. Now, i got to be honest, I never knew there was such a thing as good worry. But here Paul says he has such compassion, he has such genuine interest regarding your welfare. He has good worry about you. He's really concerned about you, the people of Philippi. Oh, Timothy was compassionate. He was also proven. Paul says he has proved himself. What does that mean? I think it means that he had demonstrated discipleship over an extended period of time. A believer is not proven in the short term. A believer is proven over the test of time. What does it take to be proven? Time, experiences, responsibility, obedience. If you have time and experiences and responsibility and you demonstrate obedience, you are demonstrating your discipleship. You are proven. Timothy was proven. He wasn't old, but he was mature in the faith. In fact, in 1 and 2 Timothy, the apostle says to his son of the ministry, don't let anyone look down on you because of your age. But you set them as an example of how to live this Christian life. Because you are proven. At the end of 2 Timothy, this is Paul's last epistle. He says to young Timothy, come quickly. My departure is at hand. And I just got a holy hunch that Timothy dropped everything he was doing. And he went to see his father in the ministry. Timothy was busy. Everybody's busy, right? Who among us is not busy? All of us have things to do. All of us have more hours, uh, more things to do than hours in the day. I mean, we're all extremely busy. Timothy was the pastor at First Baptist Ephesus. He was standing on the shoulders of Paul and, and John the Apostle as their former preachers. I mean, he knew the heavy weight and responsibility of this established congregation. And Timothy, when he heard from Paul, he said, I've got to go see him. Timothy was, he was proven. Timothy is a guy in our passage that Paul uh, elevates because Timothy is compassionate. Timothy is proven. But then he comes and speaks about Epaphroditus. He says of Epaphroditus, this man is trustworthy. This man is faithful. How trustworthy was Epaphroditus? Well, look how Paul describes him. My brother my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. He's in the trenches with me. We're in the war together. He is my brother in the faith. He is my fellow co-laborer. He is my fellow soldier. He's right there with me, advancing against the adversary. In fact, Paul says of him, he is your messenger. 
What's interesting about the word messenger, it's the Greek word apostolos, which we get the English word apostle. Now keep in mind, if it's true, which I think it is, that Paul is anticipating a rebuttal from the congregation saying, look, I'm not Jesus, how can I live this holy life? I'm not the apostle Paul, how can I live Christ in me? How can I live up to these lofty standards? He says, hey, you've got an apostle in your midst, your messenger, Epaphroditus. And I promise you that Epaphroditus would not have thought of himself as an apostle. He would not have thought of himself as an apostle and nobody in Philippi would have said, yep, he's an apostle. But in the strictest sense of the word, he was. To be an apostle is to be sent. One who is sent out with a mission. And that was Epaphroditus. Paul is telling the church, this man, he's trustworthy. He's so trustworthy that you entrusted into him all this money, all this assistance, all this aid, and you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt it would get to me. You knew that he would not skim off the top. You knew he would not pocket some of the money. You knew, you trusted him. He is your messenger. He is your apostle. And if a man like Epaphroditus can be an apostle for the sake of the gospel, so can you. You can be just like him. This man was trustworthy and, Paul says, he was faithful. How faithful is Epaphroditus? He's faithful to the point of death. On two occasions, Paul tells us he almost died. He's faithful to the point of death. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Just a few verses earlier, Paul had said of Jesus, he was obedient even to death, death on a cross. Seeing Epaphroditus, you've got Jesus sticking out. In Epaphroditus, you have someone living the incarnational Christian life. How's he doing it? He's just an ordinary saint. He's doing extraordinary tasks through Christ living in him. What's he doing? He's being trustworthy with what's been entrusted to his care. He's delivered it faithfully, and he's faithful even to the point of death. He is living out the incarnational Christian life. He's living just like Jesus, even to the point of death. So you honor men like that. You receive him with joy and gladness. Paul says, let me just give you an everyday example of what it looks like to live out this lofty Christian life in this one named Timothy that you desperately want to come back to you and this one named Epaphroditus who you have faithfully sent to me. And in both Timothy and Epaphroditus, you can see Jesus sticking out of them. Paul gives us a couple of words. For Timothy, I, I think he's compassionate. I think he's proven. For Epaphroditus, I think he's trustworthy and he's faithful. Now let's come to the third aspect of dealing with this text. Uh, I want to I, I issue a challenge for you and for me from these verses. Here's the challenge. You need to be a Paul and have a Paul in your life. You need to be a Timothy and have a Timothy in your life. You need to be an Epaphroditus 
and have an Epaphroditus in your life. Now, what do I mean by that? When I say you need to be and to have Paul, Paul is one who took his spiritual insight and gave it to others over whom he had some influence. Let me say it again. He took his spiritual insight, the truth that God had given to him, he took his spiritual insight and he gave it to others over whom he had influence. Timothy. Who's Timothy? He is one who received the instruction as a continual trusted learner. Who's Epaphroditus? Epaphroditus is one who willingly went the extra mile on mission for the gospel. In fact, he went the extra 1,600 miles. So I think you need to, I think you need to be a Paul and have a Paul. I think you need to have such a faith that is so growing in depth and knowledge and insight that what God gives to you, you then in turn give to others over which you have some influence. The truth that God gives you, the growth that he gives in your spiritual life, it's not just for you. It's not just for your benefit. It's for not only you, but also the benefit of others because God gives it to you so you can give it away to somebody else. If you don't give away your insight, your knowledge, your understanding of the Christian faith, if you don't give it away, why would God give you any more knowledge, depth of insight, or instruction? So what he gives you, you give to others over whom you have some influence. And you need to have a Paul in your life. You need to have somebody who can speak truth in your life. They can speak so clearly. They can speak so truthfully that you receive it in their life. Not everybody can be a Paul in your life. Not everybody is qualified to be a Paul in your life. But you need to have a Paul. You need to have somebody who can tell you your baby's ugly and you actually receive it. Now, you may not agree with him, right? But you think, to yourself, I respect you so much. I value you so much. If you tell me my baby's ugly, I've got to at least contemplate, is my baby ugly? Right? I mean, you've got to, you've got to be a Paul. You've got to have a Paul. But not only that, you've got to be a Timothy and you've got to have a Timothy. Now, if you have a Paul then you know what it is to be a Timothy. If you have a Paul in your life who speaks spiritual direction and truth in your life, then, then you know what it is to be a Timothy, for you receive it as one who is a continual trusted learner. I, I strive to be Paul in your life. I, I don't know that I do that well all the time, but I strive to be Paul I strive to give you spiritual direction and guidance each and every week in sermons and messages and whenever we are able to share life together uh, throughout the week or on a mission trip or a conference or, or a retreat. I mean, I try to be Paul in my life and I can certainly testify that I have a Paul in my life. My father in the ministry, Robert Smith Jr., he can tell me anything and I will receive it. I may not always agree with everything, but I at least receive it because of my ultimate respect for him in my life. 
we got to have that. So I am like a Timothy to him. You've got to be a Timothy, and you've got to have a Timothy. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've got to have a Timothy that you're pouring truth into. Can I ask you this morning, believer, do you have a Timothy? Let me ask it another way. Who are you discipling? Strategically, intentionally, who are you coming alongside to help them in their walk with Christ so they know Jesus better. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, what's been given to you has been given to you, yes, for your benefit, but also to give away to others. So who is your Timothy? The Southern Baptist Convention tells us that 80% of Southern Baptists have never shared their faith with anybody. Eight out of ten Southern Baptists who have never shared the gospel with anybody. If that's true, then it's got to be greater than 90% of Southern Baptists don't have a Timothy. It's got to be. If 80% of Southern Baptists are not sharing the faith with anybody, it's got to be greater than 90% of Southern Baptists who are not pouring their truth into anybody else. There's not a Timothy in your life. Friend, who is your Timothy? Your Timothy could be a coworker. It could be somebody on your sports team. It could be someone who lives right across the street. Yes, it could be your son or your daughter. It could be your grandson or your granddaughter, but don't just grab the son or daughter and say, yep, that's the one I'm discipling. You better intentionally disciple them. Don't just say, I'm discipling my children, my grandchildren, just to kind of check the box and get off the hook. What are you doing to come alongside them? Sharing life, sharing meals, sharing faith, sharing the scripture, walking through a passage of scripture together. What are you doing if you are a Christian? Who are you discipling? And please don't say to me, well, I'll do that later in life. Because I promise later will never come. If you don't do it now, you won't do it later. So, believer, regardless of your age, the youngest of Christians to the most mature of adults, who are you discipling? I think... That COVID-19 rudely reminded the church that we have not been in the business of making disciples. Because if we have been making disciples, then what I'm about to tell you would not be true. According to the statistics, today's church attendance across this country is 60% of what it was pre-COVID. On average, 60%. Now, we can say here, we've kind of sifted down to like somewhere between 78 to 82%. And we can think to ourselves, well, we're doing better than the average church. But that's still pathetic. Can I get an amen? That's not not good to say, well, we're okay with 20% of our people not showing up. So COVID has really reminded us that what we made instead of disciples, we made church attenders. Over the decades, we made church attenders. People who could come into church and observe and spectate. 
we made church attenders. And when COVID-19 or another global pandemic, whenever that strikes, you know what happens? Church attenders realize I can attend church, not in church. And then after a while of attending church, not in church, then it becomes I don't really have to attend church at all. Or I can attend church when only it's convenient or comfortable for me. And if I don't attend church, nobody will know. I mean, I used to be a spectator somewhere in the back dark recesses of a big massive room. Now I'm a spectator, occasionally, behind a camera lens. Now I realize that for some people, because of health concerns, they can't come back. And I get that. But that's the vast minority of the people that are no longer in our churches. The vast majority of them physically are able to come, but they just choose not to come. Why? Because we as a church, we as churches, as the evangelical church throughout the United States of America, we as the church over the last several decades, we've made church attenders and not disciples. Because if you're a disciple, you will be in church. I call it church entrenchment. It's not church attendance. It's not church involvement. It's not church appearance. It's church entrenchment. Where people say, I am so entrenched, I've got to have this collected body of believers. You know what I really think's happened? I really think we don't have enough Timothy-Paul relationships. We don't have enough Paul-Timothy relationships. We don't have enough one-on-one, one-on-a-couple relationships where as the Paul, you say to those Timothys, get your keister in church. Or not just male, but female. Maybe it's Pauline to uh, uh, Tamitha. Uh, and, And you say, hey, get your keister in church. Your husband needs it. Your children need it. Your family needs it. Because We don't have enough of those relationships of Paul to Timothy and the Timothy to receive it that if Paul says it, I at least have to take it into account. I think that as as churches, we've, we've made an emphasis on church attendance and not church entrenchment. One of the marks of being a disciple is that you're entrenched in a local church. It's not the only mark, but it's one of them. Where there are Paul and Timothy and Timothy and Paul type relationships, that happens organically. You need to be an Epaphroditus and you need to have an Epaphroditus. Who's Epaphroditus? He's one who is willing to go the extra mile on mission. You need to You need to be somebody that goes the extra mile. You need to have somebody in your life who's willing to go the extra mile for you. And listen, I know the cynic's going to rise up inside of you. And you're going to say, I am so much an Epaphroditus for everybody else. And nobody's an Epaphroditus for me. Because I go the extra mile for everybody. But nobody goes the extra mile for me. That might be how you feel right now in this moment. It might not be actually factually true. But regardless... You've you've got to ask yourself, am I being an Epaphroditus? Let me ask it this way. This last year, were there times that you went the extra mile on mission for the gospel? 
Were there times this past year you went the extra mile? You, you went on a short-term mission trip? You rearranged your schedule to do it? It was even a little bit inconvenient for you, but you went the extra mile? You went the extra mile by having a gospel conversation with somebody. It's a family member. It's a friend. It's a coworker. It's a neighbor. And even though you know them, it's kind of uncomfortable, but you still did it anyway because you were going to be an Epaphroditus and you were going to go the extra mile on mission. Or maybe, maybe you've done something that is, to the best of your ability, a, pureless, a purely selfless deed, wanting nothing in return. Do you know how hard that is? Do you know how hard it is? To do a purely selfless deed, wanting nothing in return? That is so counterintuitive to who we are as selfish, sinful creatures. But have you gone the extra mile by saying, look, I'm going to do something for you, and I don't want anything in return. It's purely selfless. Do you know what it is to be an Epaphroditus? Do you know what it is to have an Epaphroditus? You probably do and you don't even realize it. It's the person that if you are stranded on the side of the road, it's the first person you call. It's the first person you text. Because you think to yourself, if I get a hold of him, if I get a hold of her, that person will drop everything they're doing to come and help me. That's your Epaphroditus. You say, well, I've never been stranded on the side of the road. Well, praise the Lord for that. But you got to be ready for it because one day you may be. And maybe you'll be stranded on life's road. May not a, maybe not be a physical road, but maybe a spiritual, emotional, a mental space. And you just need to reach out to somebody who is your Epaphroditus. If you call them, he or she would drop everything they're doing and go the extra mile just to help. See, the challenge of these verses is that you and I, We need to be a Paul and have a Paul in our lives. We we need to be a Timothy and have a Timothy in our lives. We need to be an Epaphroditus and have an Epaphroditus. This past week, I was asked to articulate the vision of First Baptist Church Pelham. The question was posed to me, where are we going as a church? What is our vision? Where are we going? I can't think of a greater vision and I can't think of a more higher direction than the one that confronts us every Sunday. We exist to make disciples for a global impact. That's why we're here. There's no other organization in Pelham. There's no other organization in the world that has that mission. We exist to make disciples to be lifelong believing learners of Christ and to make lifelong believing learners of Christ. Friends, when you walk in or when you walk around the campus, you you pass some banners. Those banners, they encapsulate our values. We have about three values that we hold so dear. We want to enjoy God. We want to equip the saints. We want to engage the world. That's why we exist. Those are three things that we value very highly. We want to enjoy God through worship and prayer. We want to equip the saints in teaching and serving. And we want to engage the world through missions and evangelism. That's why we do what we do. We can talk about other strategic plans. But all those plans undergird the overall vision to make disciples. So we can talk about D&D Challenge. 
We can talk about who's your one. We can talk about opportunity knocks. We can talk about discovery class and man up. We can talk about our children's ministry, our preschool ministry, our student ministry, our senior adult ministry, our choir ministry. We can talk about a host of things that are all strategic in helping us accomplish that task. But ultimately, we ask ourselves the question, is it going to help us make disciples for a global impact? So in the future, whatever we do, we're going to ask the question, is this going to help us make disciples? Whether it's build a building, embark on brand new mission opportunities, engage an unreached people group, sell property, buy property. Now, by the way, I'm not telling you what we're going to do in the next few months. I don't know what we're going to do in the next few months or years. But, but if those things were to happen, we would all be striving to answer the question, is this decision going to help us make disciples for a global impact? Let me say it another way. Why do we exist? We exist to make more Pauls and Timothys and Epaphroditus's. That's why we exist. It may not be very flashy. It may not really give you a bunch of goose pimples, right? Goose bumps. I mean, it may not make, ooh, that's wonderful. But that's, that's who we are. That's why we exist. We exist to make more Pauls and to make more Timothys and to make more Epaphroditus's. We exist so that people have an ever-growing faith that they give away. We exist so that Pauls have Timothys they can pour into and Timothy receives it as a continual learner. And we exist to go the extra mile for others on mission for the gospel. That's who we are. That's why we exist. So, is Jesus living in you? If the answer is no, he can today. All you got to do is admit to God that you're a sinner in need of his salvation. Believe that Jesus is the God-man and his salvation can cover all of your sin and commit unto him all of your life. And then live out being a Paul and a Timothy and a Epaphroditus. If you do have Jesus living inside of you, then let him stick out. Be an ordinary saint who can do extraordinary tasks through Christ living in you. How many of you think of yourself as just an ordinary saint? Just ordinary. I'm just an ordinary saint. But you know what I see when I look at you? I see Christ sticking out of you. What you're doing, where you're going, how eager you are in evangelism, how you're sharing the gospel, how you're raising your family, how you're living your life, how you defend the truth. You're an ordinary saint doing extraordinary tasks through Christ living in you. And friends, that's who we are. And that's why we exist. We need some more Pauls. We need some more Timothys. We need some more Epaphroditus's, just ordinary saints doing extraordinary tasks through Christ living in us. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we give you uh, this moment of invitation. We have heard a lot over the last few moments, and maybe by your Spirit you have convicted us. Uh, you've convicted us maybe because... Uh, we don't care enough what other people say of us. Or maybe you've convicted us because we don't have a Paul. We don't listen to our Paul. We, we're not a good Timothy or 
Maybe we're not in Epaphroditus. Oh, Father, by your power and by your grace, will you please fill this altar with ordinary saints asking you to do extraordinary tasks through them in Christ. Oh, Father, if there's one here who needs to accept you by faith, let it be done today. If there's one here who needs to join this church, let it be done today. If there's one here that you're calling out to full-time Christian service, let him or her come today. Oh, God, you speak. We will listen. Let us be obedient even unto death and then allow you to take us home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.